0: up to the second letter to the Corinthians, Uh, you can start in Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament and go to Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans first, and then second Corinthians. Uh, Just wanted to give a couple uh, announcements, I know uh, in your bulletin there is a really important uh, little announcement that I just wanted to emphasize. As uh, we put out, I think, uh, online and through email, we remain, or we continue to have some needs in restoration kids. We had to close, I think, the third to fifth class this morning uh, just because of a need of teachers. Um, I want not to tell you about the need, but about the opportunity, Um, and that's not just clever. That is really real. There's an opportunity to disciple uh, young, uh, hungry little hearts uh, during our services uh, we're asking, particularly if you're a Covenant member, that you would consider just serving once a month, whether uh, as a teacher or just an assistant in there helping the teacher. Um, everything is set up. The curriculum is fantastic, and the kids are actually quite enjoyable uh, to spend time with. It's an opportunity in a captive audience to evangelize, to disciple, and just to love on some kids who uh, are ready and able and needing and love. So uh, we would ask for you to consider doing that as we go into this next year and this next quarter. Uh, Um, to mark you know once a month once every five weeks you can email Christy or Aaron and they will be happy to help you get connected down there the other is I just wanted to plug uh, a big thanksgiving to um, the old dudes and there was one young guy but the old dudes that came uh, on Saturday yesterday so that's all corridored off there because there's a big hole in the floor Uh, we got to cut uh, what amounts to 120-year-old beams uh, and make a hole for a big staircase that's going to make that the front entrance of the church. And by God's grace, some seasoned oaks uh, came and did that, about five of them. It was uh, somewhat comical to listen to them argue. I don't know if half of them could hear each other, but it was rad. Um, But honestly, uh, to have those guys come is uh, just a genuine example um, to the younger men uh, of this church and others, uh, just willingly giving up their time uh, to serve faithfully. Really, really appreciate it. Um, really excited to have that stuff done, because uh, it feels like a speed bump to what we really want to do here. Uh, but just be careful with that area back there. It's all railed off pretty well, but uh, I imagine if a kid really wanted to, like, just bull rush that thing, they probably could break through it. So, Let's just not have any kids fall through the floor today. That'd be fantastic. So we're going to continue, though, uh, in our study, an Advent. Um, and that is where we are uh, celebrating the arrival, the first arrival of Jesus. We are spending about four weeks in Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And that's because these are two chapters that are focused on generosity. Uh, they are focused on very explicit uh, giving and the grace of giving. Last week, hopefully among other things, you learned that um, the grace of Jesus, the unearned, undeserved, radical love of Jesus is the foundation of all generosity. If that is not where it starts, it's not truly generosity because true generosity in terms of gospel generosity is first and foremost motivated by the grace of Jesus. We give because we've been given to. We love because we've been loved. We forgive because we've been forgiven. If it's not inspired or motivated by the grace of Jesus, it's not really grace. And not only is it motivated by the grace of Jesus, he actually provides the means. I said last week, we're, we're just re-gifters Nothing we have is ours. We've been given everything, and so we give what we've been given. He provides what we are to provide. And then lastly, uh, Jesus gives us a model of what generosity looks like. His grace gives us a model that giving, in terms of giving like Christ, is going to hurt. It's going to be sacrificial. It's going to be costly, but it's going to be beautiful. And so um, we saw that in verse 9, Paul kind of gets to the... Climax, if you will, at least of this first chapter, and really focuses us as again, this is the reason. This is the reason why he's calling people to generosity. He says, For you know, you have understanding, you have knowledge of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, being the Son of God who owns everything, created everything, sustains everything, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty, might become rich. The depth of our understanding of the gospel is what will govern the depth of our generosity. And so, as you read that, we go, how few of us actually, naturally, choose to become poor. And I would argue that there's even fewer of us who believe we are actually rich. Perhaps that's one of the reasons. Becoming poor is, if we're honest, rather undesirable. But even if we see a need and we have this growing desire to meet it, I think oftentimes we feel unable because we are unprepared. We haven't thought about it at that moment. Now, Part of the reason is that, like most people, I include myself and everyone here, I think we naturally are most often so preoccupied with having enough for ourselves because we don't believe we're rich, so it's just having enough that we don't even consider the needs of others most of the time. At least. We won't think about it until we have what we think is just a little bit more. If I had a little bit more, I'd be able to give time. If I had a little bit more, I'd be able to do this. And I would, again, put forward that we, in 2019, living in this wonderful state, in this very uh, affluent country, truly have more than enough. We have more than enough. We don't believe that but we do have more than enough. So I did a little bit of research because I keep seeing storage units pop up everywhere. Everywhere, and I'm like, who has all this stuff? So I did some research. In 2009, there was an article in the New York Times, and they had done a study on storage units in America. And the article reported that in the United States at that time, which is 10 years ago, so we have to understand it's probably greater than it was then, that there was more than 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage space in the country. To help you understand that, that's seven square feet for every man, woman, and child in America. It was physically possible, at least 10 years ago, for every single American to stand at the same time under the total canopy of self-storage roofing. That's how much storage we have. As they learned more, it said the industry for self-storage produces more than $38 billion a year. Billion. Reportedly, 50% of those who rent these facilities are simply storing that which won't fit in their homes, even though the size of the average American home has doubled in the last 50 years. I think we got a problem. It was reported that 15 or 20% of renters, they told, I guess there's some self-storage association that keeps track of this stuff that they were actually storing items they just no longer wanted. So instead of throwing them out, they thought it would be better just to pay money to store them forever. Other highlights of this article included that between 1970 and 2008 or 9, that the actual real disposable income had doubled for Americans, and yet they were spending all of it. And just this morning, I don't know why, at a whim, I... Looked up a fact that said that people spend on average more money on coffee every year than they do on average investing, vacationing, or even holiday gifts. Coffee. And I like my coffee. (laughs) Now think about this, and this is another irony. The prices of what Americans purchase actually on the whole has plunged in the last few years, like 25 years. But that has resulted in American families collecting nearly twice as many possessions as they had 25 years earlier. I just took another load to the dump Friday of stuff that I don't even know how we got it, right? Locally, you've seen it, I I live in Lake Stevens, and there was a new one just put up. Construction of storage units cannot keep up with demand. There are literally waiting lists which extend one and two years waiting for storage units. And while these facilities are designed to be temporary, they have in many ways become tombs complete with their own reality shows where people vie for stuff that's been forgotten or abandoned. Now, if you don't personally rent a storage unit or have one for a good reason, and I'm not suggesting that it's never right to have a storage unit, I would say many of these temples of consumerism. Reveal, possibly, that on the whole, as a culture, we have more than enough. I think that many of us fear Jesus-like generosity because there's something about it that feels like we're going to be robbed of joy, that we're going to be robbed of something we could have, and so I dare not let it go because it might be an opportunity for joy there that I'll miss out on. But that's uh, somewhat in conflict with what the Scriptures teach. Paradoxically, which means it, like, kind of almost like the opposite of what you expect, almost in contradiction to what you assume, the Bible teaches us the secret of having more is actually having less. And the Bible teaches it the secret to endless contentment which is what everyone's seeking, is actually a faithful commitment to generosity. Now, no one would guess that, that the secret to contentment is to let it go. So we're in Corinthians, the second letter of the Corinthians. And by way of reminder, Paul's writing this letter to a very wealthy church in a very wealthy city And he is writing these particular chapters to encourage the Corinthians to actually contribute to a real collection of money for less fortunate Christians in Jerusalem. And so, to inspire them to participate in this venture, Paul, we saw last week, began by describing how the Macedonian Christians had given. And what he described is surprising because he says they were extremely, he uses the word, impoverished. They were in severe affliction. And yet, they had such an abundance of joy that their poverty and their joy produced incredible generosity that he says was beyond their means. They gave more than was expected. They gave more than they actually perhaps should have, they literally begged to help out. They begged to give more. Not in pursuit of man's praise, not in pursuit of Paul's approval, but in response to God's grace. That's what we began. They had a deep understanding of God's grace. So Paul, he said, I didn't command them to give. I didn't command the Macedonians to give. And he's like, I'm not commanding you guys to give in Corinth. What he's doing is giving them an invitation. An invitation to participate. An invitation perhaps to joy. And an invitation to return to what they actually had started to do. So we're going to go through verses 10 through 15. And here's what verse 10 and 11 say. Speaking about this collection... He says, in this matter, I give, give this judgment, or my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Okay, so he's not, this is not a new thing. They've heard about this before. They started doing it a year ago. And he says, now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Okay. Now, if you're like me, which in many ways I hope you're not, but if you're like me in some ways, traditionally at the end of each year, I have done resolutions. It started when I was a kid. And my mom would, around January 1st or a little on either side, we would get together... And we would write down some goals or commitments for the year, right, resolutions. Some, as I was younger, were probably pretty silly, but as I got older, they might have been more specific. And so what we would do is we'd write them down, we'd put them in an envelope, and there was this armoire we had, and we'd stick them in the armoire. And we never looked at them again, which I always thought, in retrospect, that's odd, right? I didn't have that great of a memory. Well, the pursuit of these goals, as will be the pursuit of many such goals this January, were very strong for the first few days of the month. Very eager, very excited. Did you know that that's what will happen to 80% of the gym memberships that are started this January? 80% will not be used after the first week, so don't do it. But what you see is, like, the resolution's there for a second. I'm excited to do this commitment. Yes, I'm not going to eat this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to The excitement fades pretty quickly. And the commitment falters, at least mine did, rapidly. I would remember that about a year after writing those resolutions, they were still sitting in the back of the armour in the forgotten envelope, covered, in the dust of good intentions and unfulfilled aspirations, and I would take him out the next year and go, "Oh yeah, I forgot I was going to do this." I was really excited about it for about a week. and so what this reminds us of and what Paul was reminding, like it's really easy and common to start off well it's really easy to Make a commitment. It's really easy to get excited about something for a moment. But what we see that over time that it's much harder to finish strong. It's much harder to be steadfast in your love. It's much harder to be continual in your sacrifice. It's much harder to have a long obedience in the same direction, especially with generosity. That's hard. Now, growing up, I also played soccer a lot. So I played it starting at like age five, played, you know, just a lot, all the way through school and into college, and it was awesome. And the thing that has never changed in terms of training to this day is that I loved sprinting, and I hated running long distance. Hated it. Today, there are people running chasing some Grinch dude on some run, and I still cannot understand why anyone would ever pay money to start running and to stop running after a couple miles. It makes no sense to me. It sounds horrible. About as good as root canal work, I would choose the root canal. That's how bad (laughs) I view it. Sprinting for me was, right, one was short, and the other was, by definition, longer. One was easy for me. I could sprint stop, sprint stop, sprint stop. All right, that's good. Beat everybody great. wasn't difficult. Long distance was hard. One was usually pretty gratifying immediately. And one never was, ever, at any time. And so what I see is that it's really not hard to rally people to be inspired for the moment. It's not hard to rally people and get energized to give generously and to be sacrificial for a moment of time. Guess what all you need? A big tragedy or a big vision. That's it. Big tragedy? Yes! Let me meet that need. It feels good, doesn't it? Hey, let's raise money for the building. Yeah, I'm going to give to it cuz it's a big thing. I can see it and those things aren't intrinsically wrong but I find it much more difficult to be inspired or to rally people to long-term faithfulness, to long-term generosity, to long-term obedience. That's harder. It's not as energizing after a while. But I would argue it's much more rewarding. I think we don't only struggle with commitment in our culture. I think we actually struggle with fulfilling the commitments that we actually make, the covenants that we sign. Jesus said a lot about this. This is largely about discipleship and obedience and following Him. But He said, whoever does not bear His own cross, which, if you're curious, that's not comfortable. No one ever said, like, wow, bearing a cross, that sounds fantastic. Like, that sounds like really light, easy work and no, not difficult at all. We know it's ultimately incredibly rewarding, but there's difficulty in that. He says, if you can't bear your own cross, you can't, you can't be my disciple. Then he goes, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with his 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, he's not able, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. And so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has, which is an interesting way to say it, cannot be my disciple. I think sometimes it's difficult for us to be faithful in giving because we've never really intentionally thought about it in advance. Yes, this passage is largely about discipleship and going, following Christ has a cost. And don't just say, I believe, and never count the cost of what that's going to demand upon your life, because I guarantee you it's much more than 10%. I'm not sure we're really intentional about that. So when needs come up or they're presented before us, we're like, I'm unprepared. Yeah, yeah, because you never thought about it till that moment. It's interesting how often we count the cost of building a home, count the cost of buying a car, count the costs of planning a vacation, count the cost of what it's going to be to pursue a career. And while many, I believe, do count the costs of what it's going to mean to confess belief in Christ, I wonder how many of us keep counting the cost after that in terms of what it means to keep following Him. And have we ever counted the cost of generosity? What it would mean to be more generous with all that God has given. Like many of us want to serve, we have a desire, we have an eagerness, even as the Corinthians did. We have good intentions. I want to serve faithfully. I want to give generously. I just need to wait a little bit till I have more time. Maybe when my kid's are a little bit older or when my job is a little more secure. If I've said a little more, fill in the blank. And perhaps the Corinthians felt the same way. This is why I think it's noteworthy that Paul tells them to complete it, to finish it out of what you have, not what you don't have. I think many of us, though we may not have a storage unit in our lives right now, it's possible that many of us have a storage unit in our hearts that's full and perhaps being wasted. I believe if you wait till you have abundance, whatever that might mean, abundance to serve, abundance to give, abundance to love, if you wait to have abundance to do those things, then you will never serve, you will never give, and you will never love with what you have right now. And that is what God has called you to do. Afraid that You won't be able to finish what you started. Many of us won't even start. It's just too much. I don't have much to offer. You know, Paul uses the image of a race, unfortunately, not a sprint, but more of a marathon, which is difficult for me. Because if I were to go run a marathon at any point in my life, it would not be pretty. I'd look really good for about 200 yards. And after that, I'd be walking. After a few miles, I'd probably be sitting on the curb for a little bit with those spongy things and water cups, like whatever, and then I would get up. But here's the deal. It doesn't matter if you win the race. Just that you finish. Even if you got an inch along. Every little bit Matters to God. Did you know that? As you're in the race, He's like, "Hey, man, you could run faster." Hey, you know what's wrong with you? It's like, "Ah, this is this is these are the legs you gave me, God. This is what I got. This is the time. So, so we inch along. I think oftentimes we look at what we have and we go, "Oh, it doesn't matter. It's not going to make a difference." Consider what Jesus said. He was at the temple. And he saw people giving their offerings. You're probably familiar with this passage in Luke 21. He saw the rich and the wealthy putting their gifts in the offering box. And he sees a poor widow come up with two small copper coins. It's called the widow's mite. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Now, technically, she had put in much less. But not in the eyes of God. Why? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I'm not sure we are willing to do that, where God is calling us toward that, to take a step in that direction, to consider that, well, even though I only have a might, it might actually help whatever you have is from God. Even if what you have is very little. But what you have is entrusted to you. To be used. For him. In response to his love. And I will beat this into my own brain perpetually because it's hard for me to believe this. But as I do I will in love beat it into yours. And that is that you have enough right now to be faithfully generous. You do. Paul says in verse 12 of this passage we're going over, and if readiness is there, if the desire, if the earn, okay, I want to, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. That should be a comforting verse. This isn't about what you don't have. This is not about having more of something. I think it's, as I said, hard to believe that the few mites of money we have, the few mites of time or talent we think is insignificant, that it can actually make a difference, that it actually matters. I think we not only make the mistake of evaluating the worthiness of what we're going to give to, like, eh, that's not really worth it, we actually evaluate the worthiness or the value of what we have to give. That, like, oh, I don't, I don't have much to offer. I'm not this. I don't got this much money. I'm not. I. I. We play the compare game. Wrongly so. Paul reemphasizes to the Corinthians that they have enough to give, and he's encouraging each individual to give into in proportion to what they have and not what they do not. I think when we mistakenly compare our gift to others, right? We compare our skills to others, our time to others, like, well, I can't do like they do. All it does is make us feel either superior or inferior, which are both rooted in pride. I look like, look how much I gave, and you don't give nothing. Look how much time I've devoted, you didn't devote nothing. Or, look how much time they have, I don't have any, I'm not as worthy. And that's where it goes. Don't play that game because it's evil and it's unhelpful. It's man-centered and it's not centered on God. If we consider that our gifts are all from God and that they are all ultimately given to God, right? We're just like middlemen. He entrusts us and we give it away. And if you focus on giving it to God, you stop asking like, well, what am I going to do with my stuff? And instead you start going, I wonder what God is going to do through me with his stuff. That's a very different question. If it's like, well, what am I going to do with my money? Problem. You mean, what is God going to do through you with his money? Because it's all a gift. That becomes a very different approach to life and our stuff. Now, this Tuesday we were going through discipleship with the men and I was reminded of uh, the Feeding of the 5,000. That's a story that's recorded in several Gospels. Uh, it's one of two such miracles that Jesus does. And it really speaks about having enough to bless. You may be familiar with the story, but I'll remind you. What happens is, tired and hungry, Jesus looks at his disciples and he's like, Hey guys, let's go off to a desolate place by ourselves and get some rest because we haven't even been able to eat And all of God's disciples are like, amen, good idea, Jesus. So they get in the boat, and they start going across the sea. And the crowds are like, oh, I see where they're going. And they scamper, that's a word, scamper around the sea, so that when they get across the sea to the other side, the crowds are still there. So imagine, you're tired, you're hungry. Jesus is like, hey guys, let's go take a rest. We'll take some time by ourselves in a desolate place. You leave, and then you arrive to the exact same thing. The disciples are not very excited. In fact, as you read, they sound quite irritated. And yet Jesus doesn't. He gets out, and it says that he's compassionate. He's tired, he's hungry, but he has compassion for these people, so he begins to teach them, he begins to minister to them, and then the irritation of the disciples comes out. It starts to get dark. And the disciples go, uh, There's like 5,000 people here. And they think it could be more than that, because that just, you keep counting the, the fathers or the men. So it could be upwards of 10,000, even more. They're like looking around, like, There's a lot of people here. He's like, Jesus, will you send them away so they can go get food, i.e., so we can eat and get some rest too, right? And what Jesus says to them, is interesting, and it's hard to know, like, tones. Like, how is he saying it? Is he angry? Is he like, come on, guys. He says, you get them something to eat. And the disciples, it's very clear in their sarcasm how they respond to that. Oh, really, Jesus? So you want us to go spend nine months' worth of wages to feed all these people? Because that's how much the 200 denarii, I think, is what they said. Nine months. So just do the math. That's a lot of money. They're like, right, so go spend all this money to feel his people. And what does Jesus say to them after they say that? Because what are they basically saying? Yeah, that's ridiculous. We don't have enough. And so what does Jesus say? He says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And what does that tell you? The disciples didn't have a clue how much they had which is how we pretty much deal with needs in front of us. We automatically assume, we don't have enough. I can't, I can't meet this need. This is impossible. This is way too big for me. I can't, what I have is not matter. They didn't even know. They just assume like, we don't have enough. And he goes, go and see how much you have. So they do. And what do they find? Five loaves and two fish. Which? For all practical purposes, that's not enough. It wasn't like gigantic, huge rolls, right? It was like five loaves, two fish, 10,000 plus people. And so the disciples, you can come back like, yeah, five loaves, Jesus, two fish. Will you send them away now? And what does he say? Give me what you have. And he blesses it. And what does he do? feeds everybody. We go, what? what does that teach us? As I said, few of us believe that we have enough. I think that's our default mode. I probably don't have enough. And when we see a need before us, an opportunity to help, Our first response is, I probably don't have enough to fix that problem. I don't have enough to meet that need. I'm going to think about myself and what I, 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 I. We remain focused on the wrong thing, namely ourselves. What am I able to do with this? But I would encourage all of us that whatever little we have, whatever little we think we can give, if you commit to bringing it to Jesus. He has the power to make it enough. Even if in your eyes, it seems like it's going to make no difference. If you're focused on you, and you're even focused on this person, you're probably right. But if you're focused on giving it to the Lord, He can make it enough. I think without doubt, this also teaches us about creative generosity, because there's more than one way to give generously. What we have to believe is not only that we have enough, but that we have enough, that what we have actually, and not more, is enough to do God's work. Now, in verses 13 and 14, He also begins to turn as he's speaking to the Corinthians and and speaking about generosity and community and what that actually looks like. He's not only told them, like, you guys have enough and and what you have will suffice to, to fulfill what God wants to do with it. And he says in verse 13 something quite interesting. He says, I don't mean that others should be eased and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, or the CSV will say equality, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness or equality. I was speaking with uh, Pastor Mike this week just about his road group and specifically about conversations he had about generosity in his group And I was struck by something, which was simply this how rare it must be to have that kind of conversation with people. I mean, how often do men and women gather together and ask one another, How are we going to excel in generosity? Or, You know what, guys, I'm wondering if I'm generous at all. What does generosity look like for you? Maybe I'm greedy. Like, those are not the kinds of conversations that we typically have, or that people typically have. We will get together and talk about many things in our lives, talk about our children, talk about our jobs, talk about our vacation plans, talk about the things we like. But I don't know how often we're open about our generosity or lack thereof. And I think it's a beautiful thing to do that. I believe it's important to have brothers and sisters in Christ, and certainly this is not a huge circle. It's not like everyone we talk about, let's just talk about every, But there has to be people in your lives other than your spouse, other than your closest family, people in your lives that you trust, that you would invite, and that would invite you into talking about how you use your time and how you use your money and how you use your resources and how you use the skills. That you would be a place of safety to share that, to be vulnerable like that. That's pretty risky I realize that. And you may not have that now, but my prayer is that we can get to a place like that. Because guess what? We're blind to our own blindness. And we need people to speak into our lives, and we need others, or others need us to speak into theirs. And the interesting thing about sharing is that as you share about that and you expose like that, it's not like, well, man... I got so much extra money, guys. I just don't know how to be generous. What do you think I should do? I'm not talking about that. What about those who really don't have enough? The beauty of sharing in community is not only understanding whether generous or not, but then actually sharing needs in that community. Because truly, sometimes you are the person that has a need, and sometimes you are the person that... um, is there to give to it. What I mean by that, God designed the church to meet one another's needs. And certainly, I think it's important to try to meet the needs of those neighbors around us, but by all accounts in Scripture, there's a responsibility towards one another for those in a local gathering. It's beautiful when you see the first expression of the church, the things that were most important to them. Peter preaches his first sermon, thousands of people come to faith, They likely start gathering in homes in different places. And it says, what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and breaking the bread together, having communion together and praying together. They were together. And it goes on, it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Okay? And then it goes on. It goes on. There we go. And they were selling their possessions and belongings. Now, mind you, they're not being commanded to do this. This is not some rule in order to be part of the community. They are being stirred by the Spirit, moved by the grace that has been shown to them. It says they're selling their possessions and belongings that they've been storing in their Jerusalem self-storages, and they're distributing the proceeds to anyone who had need. Now check it out. And day by day, attending the temple together, so they're worshiping together, they're breaking bread in their homes, they're still worshiping together in their homes, they receive their food with what? Glad and, interesting word, generous hearts. Generosity was characterizing these people. Loving one another in practical ways. Meeting the needs of those people that they knew characterized the church. And it's not always practical needs, but it often is. Some of you may have seen at the end of service on Sunday a group of people praying up here. You know what that was a result of? Men and women sharing life. Men and women sharing difficulty. Men and women saying, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to to tell you my my brokenness. And I'm really hoping you don't reject me. And brothers and sisters saying, I don't reject you. I love you. Giving to one another what is needed in the moment. You know what that requires? Intimacy. Requires knowing one another, which is like the last thing we like, ah, I don't know it's so uncomfortable. But it's the path to joy. Paul tells us that he has no intention of trading one burden for another. He doesn't want the relief of one person in exchange for the distress of somebody else. But he does say we want to pursue equality. And that's not some kind of veiled socialism that he's talking about. It's simply a commitment of those who have abundance to help those who do not. And I would say, that changes. What I mean is, you're not always in the category of abundance. and You're not always in the category of deficiency. But you're likely going to be in both of those at some times in different seasons. I remember when um, I was a high school teacher in Marysville and they went on the longest strike in state history. You may remember it. I can't remember exactly what year it was, but it was like 50, 60 days. We ended up going to school on like Saturdays, and it was like horrible. Um, I had two kids, I believe, at the time. And like when we went on strike, paycheck's gone. I never had that experience. Um, didn't prepare for that experience very well. I was young, and it was rather scary. Um, I am not the kind of person that is very good at asking for help. And by God's grace, because I was in community, I didn't have to ask. People just came. I had people show up in my house and they'd be like, yep, so here's a cooler of like steak. And I'm like, okay, thank you. Like people just gave us food and gave us, like we didn't ask. And we were definitely in need. I mean, we would have uh, probably been okay, but I was still scared. It was a time of deficiency for us. And those who had abundance took care of us. That's because of community. And at some point in some time, you're going to be in need. And being a part of community is is like that is what should characterize our church. We can't solve every problem in the world, but we can help one another. I can't know everybody in the world, but we can know one another. Instead of perhaps spending our surplus that we have now or storing our surplus away, perhaps we should consider sh- sharing or saving our surplus for those who might be in need. You ever thought about saving money? Because I think we typically like, well, oh, I've got this extra money. I can finally get that couch I wanted. You ever thought about saving that money and just waiting for God to show you a need somewhere? That's a pretty awesome experience. To are like, hmm, Lord, why don't you tell me what to do with this extra? I'll just put it here. I'll just wait. Paul references an interesting passage at the close of this text that we're going over. Um, and he says this as the last verse. And it's kind of weird. He just told them, like, hey, collect, use what you have, what you have is enough. And then he says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And you're like, what? It's quoted, right? If you have the CSB, it probably isn't bold, which means it's an Old Testament reference. And the reference is that of Exodus chapter 16. And at that point, the Israelites who had been freed from slavery in Egypt, gone through the Red Sea were on their way, walking through the wilderness to the promised land. And they were getting hungry. And they started to complain to the point where they're like, I wish we were back in Egypt, which is a common refrain throughout this wilderness wandering. And they even said this. They said, oh, this is so horrible. I'm so hungry. Remember back in Egypt when we sat next to the big, full meat pots and we all ate as much bread as we could eat. I mean, we were being whipped and beaten and killed and stuff. But it was so awesome to be able to have a full stomach. I mean, at least we'd be—we might be dead, but we have a full belly in death, right? And so the Lord goes. Uh, Moses goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, "All right, I'm going to give them bread and meat from heaven." It's going to appear every morning. So Moses goes to the Israelites, and here's what he says to them. This is what the Lord has commanded. As this all comes down, it just appears in the morning magically, right? Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat, which that's a pretty good deal. You shall each take an omer, which is a measurement, particular kind of measurement, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. So when you go out, you got ten people in your tent, twenty people, like, get as much for each member of your family or who's staying with you. It says, and the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, not because they were greedy, because some had more people in their tent, and some had less, right? And it says, and when, but, so there's a but there, but, when they measured it with an omer, implying that some didn't, when they measured it with an omer, which was the Lord's command, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. The text goes on and describes there were those who didn't do it that way who didn't listen to the words of the Lord, and they took more than they needed. And that which they stored away in their little storage unit tent, next to their tent, bred worms overnight and began to stink and make the whole tent reek. And you go, Why would Paul put this verse in there? Seems odd. It wouldn't be odd to the Corinthians, especially the Jewish Corinthians among them. Whether the Israelites in this text understood it or not, whether it felt good or not, when the Israelites obeyed the word of the Lord and only took what they needed, they had no lack and were blessed. You see, though we won't admit this, many of us take more than we need. We take more than we need. And we justify it in different ways. And the irony of it all is that the less generous we are, the more that we keep for ourselves, the, most we, like, the more we think that we need more it never seems to satisfy. You always feel like you just don't have enough. But I believe Paul here is reminding us that even though we could spend more, even though we could store more, it's actually Corinthians and restoration onions. It's only when we are generous that we actually Feel like we have enough. Isn't that weird? It's only when we use what we need and give away that we don't that we actually feel filled up as if we have no lack. But I know, and you know, that that requires walking in faith. Because if it didn't require walking in faith, then we would just need to wait for abundance and then it would make sense on paper. But as we worry about what we need to eat and I got to make ends meet and all this stuff, Jesus tells us, like, don't worry. I'm going to give you what you need. The passage read earlier, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, don't stress about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, right? They seek after them. They go fight. That's what they're driven by. And your father knows you need them all. He knows you need food. He knows you need clothes. He knows you need something to drink and shelter and all these things. But what does he tell us to do, unlike the world? Seek first. Not only. First the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I think that's just a basic question, and it's not one to compare with others. I wonder if they're seeking. What are you seeking first? What's truly first? Especially as you have abundance, especially as you have surplus. Are you first when you think about that? What is first? What's your priority? When you have extra, do you think, I wonder what the Lord would have me do with this? Or how about just thinking about all that you have now? I wonder what the Lord would have me do with this. Do you ever have that conversation? Do you ever think that way? I would encourage you to do that and begin seeking his kingdom first. Why? Because as Paul said in the very beginning, it benefits you. You know what I love about this? He doesn't say, I give my judgment on this. This is really going to benefit those people in Jerusalem. This is really going to benefit that person in need. It will. But he says, it's a benefit to you to be generous. I think we all too often count the costs of generosity, and we never count the costs of greed. Of what greed does to you. We don't feel gritty, so just like of not being generous, that feel better, like of not being generous. I think we underestimate. We were talking about this in the elder meeting this week. We underestimate the level of stress and actually relative slavery that comes from having more stuff, having to take care of stuff and maintain stuff and just make sure stuff is taking you know okay. It can be overwhelming. And I think the Lord wants us to be free of that. And quite frankly, like greed actually um, it grieves God. And if the parable of the talents is any indication of his heart, it does more than grieve him. It actually angers him when he entrusts you with something and you don't do anything with it. Or you spend it just basically on yourself. And when we're not generous quite simply we're not living like Christ and living like Christ is how you were designed to live and if you are working against the very way you were designed to live I'm not sure how you expected to experience joy or contentment so we imagine though right the benefits of greed well if I don't give it away here's the stuff I could do with it. And we don't do it in some like <laughs> evil way, but like that's kind of how our brain works, I think. Well, if I keep this extra, I, I could do this. But there we say, would you consider the benefits of generosity? And here's just one simply stated. Generosity leads to joy. I, I don't know if I can prove that to you other than to say that's what God's word says even if it's costly, even if it hurts, it'll actually lead to joy. I, I don't know about you, I want joy. I want to pursue joy. And so I'll pursue whatever God says, there's joy, okay, I want that. And I also think it's fair to say, like, it pleases God. I think sometimes when we're, we're which rightfully so, we're rooted in the gospel and, and we know we're hidden in Christ and we know he loves us even with all our faults and we, we think like, yeah, but like he's always pleased with us and like, no, he can be grieved in you by you. And you can also please, and he can delight in you. I want the Lord to delight in me and I want to delight in him. And what is most pleasing to him is guess what? Not that you give away half your paycheck. What was most pleasing to him is just to live like Jesus and love like Jesus, to know his son and to endeavor to show the world what he's like. See, Jesus counted the cost. And we read the Bible in such a short story, but it was over thousands of years. Was incredibly patient and steadfast in his generosity. He counted on the cost and then he committed to the cross. And though you know he was tempted right after his baptism to give it all, like, like don't do the way of God and I'll give you everything that the earth can offer. Satan offered him everything. Every earthly kingdom available. And he was, he came into the world to be king. And Satan's like, here you go, do it my way. Keep it all. And he chose the path of the cross. He chose the path to ultimately deny himself every earthly kingdom that he might obtain an eternal one. And he spent every bit of his blood for us. As I said, we may not have a storage unit on earth or in our lives, but I wonder if there's one in our hearts. And I'll close with what Jesus says about our hearts. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know how many hearts are sitting in storage units right now? Quite a few. Don't let that be you. Seek his kingdom. And please know that the Lord does not love you because you give more than someone else. The Lord has given to you, and I will assure you, if you give unto the Lord, you will fall deeply more in love with Him. I promise you that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your generosity towards us. It is undeserved, it is unearned, And knowing how unworthy we are, Lord, it is incredibly radical. Thank you for giving us everything we have and everything we don't have. Lord, would you remind us that we have exactly what you want us to have. And all that we have, Lord, is enough for us to be generous like you were to us. Lord, we pray that we will find joy in being more generous that we'll find pleasure in being more generous and that you will delight in our generosity as we delight in you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs>